0: Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Tonight, I will be reading Wives and Daughters. Elizabeth Gaskell. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. CHAPTER ONE THE DAWN OF A GALA DAY To begin with the old rigmarole of childhood. In a country there was a shire, And in that shire there was a town. And in that town there was a house. And in that house there was a room. And in that room there was a bed. And in that bed there lay a little girl, wide awake and longing to get up, but not daring to do so for fear of the unseen power in the next room. A certain Betty, whose slumbers must not be disturbed until six o'clock struck when she weakened of herself as sure as clockwork and left the household very little peace afterwards. It was a June morning, and early as it was, the room was full of sunny warmth and light. On the drawers opposite to the little white dimity bed in which Molly Gibson lay was a primitive kind of bonnet stand, on which was hung a bonnet, carefully covered over, from any chance of dust with a large cotton handkerchief, of so heavy and serviceable a texture, that if the thing underneath it had been a flimsy fabric of gauze and lace and flowers, it would have been altogether scumfished, again to quote from Betty's vocabulary. But the bonnet was made of solid straw, and its only trimming was a plain white ribbon put over the crown and forming the strings. Still, there was a neat little quilling inside, every plait of which Molly knew, for had she not made it herself the evening before with infinite pains, and was there not a little blue bow in this quilling, the very first bit of such finery Molly had ever had the prospect of wearing. Six o'clock now. The pleasant, brisk ringing of the church bells told that, calling everyone to their daily work, they had done for hundreds of years. Up jumped Molly and ran with her bare little feet across the room and lifted off the handkerchief and saw once again the bonnet, the pledge of the bright day to come. Then to the window and after some tugging she opened the casement and let in the sweet morning air. The dew was already off the flowers in the garden below but still rising from the long hay grass in the meadows directly beyond. At one side lay the little town of Hollingford, into a street of which Mr. Gibson's front door opened, and delicate columns and little puffs of smoke were already beginning to rise from many a cottage chimney where some housewife was already up and preparing breakfast for the breadwinner of the family. Molly Gibson saw all this, but all she thought about was, oh, it will be a fine day. I was afraid it never, never would come, or that, if it ever came, it would be a rainy day. Five and forty years ago, children's pleasures in a country town were very simple, and Molly had lived for twelve long years without the occurrence of any event so great as that which was now impending. Poor child. It is true that she had lost her mother, which was a jar to the whole tenor of her life, but that was hardly an event in the sense referred to, and besides, she had been too young to be conscious of it at the time. The pleasure she was looking forward to today was her first share in a kind of annual festival in Hollingford. The little straggling town faded away into country on one side, close to the entrance lodge of a great park. Where lived my lord and lady cumnor, the earl and the countess, as they were always called by the inhabitants of the town, where a very pretty amount of feudal feeling still lingered, and showed itself in a number of small ways, droll enough to look back upon, but serious matters of importance at the time. It was before the passing of the reform bill, but a good deal of liberal talk took place occasionally between two or three of the more enlightened freeholders living in Hollingford, and there was a great Tory family in the county who, from time to time, came forward and contested the election with the rival Whig family of Cumnor. One would have thought that the above-mentioned liberal-talking inhabitants would have, at least, admitted the possibility of their voting for the Healy Harrison, and thus trying to vindicate their independence. But no such thing. The Earl was lord of the manor. And owner of much of the land on which Hollingford was built, he and his household were fed and doctored, and to a certain measure clothed by the good people of the town. Their father's grandfathers had always voted for the eldest son of Cumnor Towers, and falling in the ancestral track, every man jack in the place gave his vote to the liege lord, totally irrespective of such chimeras as political opinion. This was no unusual instance of the influence of the great landowners over humbler neighbours in those days before railways. And it was well for a place where the powerful family, who thus overshadowed it, were of so respectable a character as the Cumnors. They expected to be submitted to and obeyed. The simple worship of the townspeople was accepted by the earl and countess as a right, and they would have stood still in amazement and with a horrid memory of the French saint culottes, who were the bugbears of their youth, had any inhabitant of Hollyford ventured to set his will or opinions in opposition to those of the Earl. But, yielded all that obeisance, they did a good deal for the town, and were generally condescending, and often thoughtful and kind in their treatment of their vassals. Lord Cumnor was a forbearing landlord. Putting his steward a little on one side sometimes, and taking the reins into his own hands now and then, much to the annoyance of the agent, who was, in fact, too rich and independent to care greatly for preserving a post where his decisions might, any day, be overturned by my lord's taking a fancy to go pottering, as the agent irreverently expressed it, in the sanctuary of his own home, which, being interpreted, meant. That occasionally the Earl asked his own questions of his own tenants and used his own eyes and ears in the management of the smaller details of his property. But his tenants liked my lord all the better for this habit of his. Lord Cumnor had certainly a little time for gossip, which he contrived to combine with the failing of personal intervention between the old land steward and the tenantry. But then the Countess made up. By her unapproachable dignity for this weakness of the Earls. Once a year she was condescending. She and the ladies, her daughters, had set up a school, not a school after the manner of schools nowadays, where far better intellectual teaching is given to the boys and girls of laborers and work people, than often falls to the lot of their betters in worldly estate, but a school of the kind we should call. Industrial, where girls are taught to sew beautifully, to be capital housemaids and pretty fair cooks, and above all to dress neatly in a kind of charity uniform devised by the ladies of Cumnor Towers white caps, white tippets, check aprons, blue gowns, and ready curtsies and please ma'ams being de rigueur. Now, as the Countess was absent from the Towers for a considerable part of the year, she was glad to enlist the sympathy of the Hollingford ladies in this school, with a view to obtaining their aid as visitors during the many months that she and her daughters were away. And the various unoccupied gentlewomen of the town responded to the call of their liege lady, and gave her their service as required, and along with it, a great deal of whispered and fussy admiration. How good of the countess, so like the dear countess always thinking of others, And so on. While it was always supposed that no strangers had seen Hollingford properly, unless they had been taken to the Countess's school, and had been duly impressed by the neat little pupils and the still neater needlework there to be inspected, in return, there was a day of honour set apart every summer, when, with much gracious and stately hospitality, Lady Cumnor and her daughters received. All the school visitors at the Towers, a great family mansion standing in aristocratic seclusion in the centre of the large park, of which one of the lodges was close to the little town. The order of this annual festivity was this. About ten o'clock, one of the Towers' carriages rolled through the lodge and drove to different houses, wherein dwelt a woman to be honoured, picking them up by ones or twos till the loaded carriage drove back again through the ready portals, bowled along the smooth, tree-shaded road, and deposited its coffee of smartly-dressed ladies on the great flight of steps leading to the ponderous doors of Cumnor Towers, back again to the town, another picking up of womankind in their best clothes, and another return, and so on, till the whole party were assembled, either in the house, Or in the really beautiful gardens. After the proper amount of exhibition on the one part and admiration on the other, had been done, there was a collation for the visitors, and some more display of admiration of the treasures inside the house. Towards four o'clock, coffee was brought round, and this was a signal of the approaching carriage that was to take them back to their own homes, whither they returned with the happy consciousness of a well spent day. But with some fatigue at the long continued exertion of behaving their best and talking on stilts for so many hours. Nor were Lady Cumnor and her daughters free from something of the same self approbation and something too of the same fatigue, the fatigue that always follows on unconscious efforts to behave as will best to please the society you were in. For the first time in her life, Molly Gibson was to be included among the guests at the towers. She was much too young to be a visitor of the school, so it was not on that account that she was to go. But it had so happened that one day, when Lord Cumnor was on a pottering exhibition, he had met Mr. Gibson, the doctor of the neighbourhood, coming out of the farmhouse my lord was entering, and having some small question to ask the surgeon, Lord Cumnor seldom passed any one of his acquaintance Without asking a question of some sort. Not always attending to the answer, it was his mode of conversation. He accompanied Mr. Gibson to the outbuilding, to a ring in the wall of which the surgeon's horse was fastened. Molly was there too, sitting square and quiet on her rough little pony, waiting for her father. Her grave eyes opened large and wide at the close neighborhood and evident advance of the Earl. For to her little imagination, the grey haired, red faced, somewhat clumsy man was a cross between an archangel and a king. Your daughter, A Gibson? Nice little girl. How old? Pony wants trimming, though, patting it as he talked. What's your name, my dear? He's sadly behind with his rent. As I was saying, but if he's really ill, I must see after Sheepshanks, who is a hardish man of business. What's his complaint? You come to our school scrimmage on Thursday, little girl. What's your name? Mind you send her or bring her, Gibson, and just give a word to your groom, for I'm sure that pony wasn't singed last year, now was he? Don't forget Thursday, little girl. What's your name? It's a promise between us, is it not? And oft the earl trotted, attracted by the sight of the farmer's eldest son on the other side of the yard. Mr. Gibson mounted, and he and Molly rode off. They did not speak for some time. Then she said, May I go, Papa? In rather an anxious little tone of voice. Where, my dear? said he, wakening up, out of his own professional thoughts. To the towers on Thursday, you know. That gentleman, she was shy of calling him by his title, asked me, Would you like it, my dear? It has always seemed to me rather a tiresome piece of gaiety. Rather a tiring day, I mean, beginning so early, and the heat and all that. Oh, Papa, said Molly, reproachfully. You'd like to go then, would you? Yes, if I may. He asked me, you know. Don't you think I may? He asked me twice over. Well, we'll see. Yes, I think we can manage it, if you wished so much, Molly. Then they were silent again. By and by, Molly said, Please, Papa, I do wish to go, but I don't care about it. That's a rather puzzling speech, but I suppose you mean you don't care to go if it will be any trouble to get you there. I can easily manage it, however, so you may consider it settled. You want a white frock, remember? You'd better tell Betty you're going, and she'll see after making you tidy. Now, there were two or three things to be done by Mr. Gibson, before he could feel quite comfortable about Molly's going to the festival at the Towers, and each of them involved a little trouble on his part. But he was very willing to gratify his little girl. So the next day, he rode over to the Towers, ostensibly to visit some sick housemaid, but, in reality, to throw himself in my lady's way and get her to ratify Lord Cumnor's invitation to Molly. He chose his time, with a little natural diplomacy, which indeed he had often to exercise in his intercourse with a great family. He rode into the stable yard about twelve o'clock, a little before luncheon time, and yet after the worry of opening the post bag and discussing its contents was over, after he had put up his horse, he went in by the back way to the house, the house on this side, the towers at the front. He saw his patient, gave his directions to the housekeeper, and then went out with a rare wild flower in his hand to find one of the ladies' tranmere in the garden, where, according to his hope and calculation, he came upon Lady Cumnor too, now talking to her daughter about the contents of an open letter which she had in her hand, now directing a gardener about certain bedding-out plants. I was calling to see Nanny, and I took the opportunity of bringing Lady Agnes a plant I was telling her about, as growing on Cumnor Moss. Thank you so much, Mr. Gibson. Mamma, look, this is the Drosera rotundifolia I've been wanting so long. Ah, yes, very pretty, I dare say. Only I'm no botanist. Nanny is better, I hope. We can't have anyone laid up next week, for the house will be quite full of people. And here are the Danbys, waiting to offer themselves as well one comes down for a fortnight of quiet at Whitsuntide, and leaves half one's establishment in town, and as soon as people know of our being here, we get letters without end, longing for a breath of country air, or seeing how lovely the towers must look in the spring. And I must own, Lord Cumnor is a great deal to blame for it all, for as soon as ever we are down here, he rides about to all the neighbours, and invites them to come over and spend a few days. We shall go back to town on Friday the 18th, said Lady Agnes, in a consolatory tone. Ah, yes, as soon as we have got over the school visitor's affair. But it is a week to that happy day. By the way, said Mr. Gibson, availing himself of the good opening thus presented, I met my lord at the Cross Trees farm yesterday, and he was kind enough to ask my little daughter, who is with me, to be one of the party here on Thursday. It would give the lassie great pleasure, I believe. He paused for Lady Cummer to speak. Oh, well. If my Lord asked her, I suppose she must come. But I wish he was not so amazingly hospitable. Not but what the little girl will be quite welcome, only, you see, he met a younger Miss Browning the other day, of whose existence I had never heard. She visits at the school, Mama, said Lady Agnes. Well, perhaps she does. I never said she did not. I knew there was one visitor of the name of Browning. I never knew there were two, but of course, as soon as Lord Cumnor heard there was another, he must needs ask her, so the carriage will have to go backwards and forwards four times now to fetch them all. So your daughter can come quite easily, Mr. Gibson, and I shall be very glad to see her for your sake. She can sit Bodkin with the Brownians, I suppose. You'll arrange it all with them. And mind you get Nanny, well, up to her work next week. Just as Mr. Gibson was going away, Lady Cumnor called after him. Oh, by the by, Clare is here. You remember Clare, don't you? She was a patient of yours long ago. Clare, he repeated in a bewildered tone. Don't you recollect her? Miss Clare, our old governess, said Lady Agnes. About twelve or fourteen years ago, before Lady Cuxhaven was married. Oh, yes, said he. Miss Clare who had the scarlet fever here. A very pretty, delicate girl. But I thought she was married. Yes, said Lady Cumner. She was a silly little thing, and did not know when she was well off. We were all very fond of her, I'm sure. She went and married a poor curate, and became a stupid Mrs. Kirkpatrick. But we always kept on calling her Claire. And now he's dead and left her a widow, and she is staying here, and we are racking our brains to find out some way of helping her to a livelihood without parting her from her child. She's somewhere about the grounds, if you like to renew your acquaintance with her. Thank you, my lady. I'm afraid I cannot stop today. I have a long round to go. I've stayed here too long as it is, I'm afraid. Long as his ride had been that day, he called on the Miss Brownings in the evening to arrange about Molly's accompanying them to the towers. They were tall, handsome women, past their first youth, and inclined to be extremely complacent to the widow doctor. Mr. Gibson, we shall be delighted to have her with us. You should never have thought of asking us such a thing, said Miss Browning, the elder. I'm sure I'm hardly sleeping at nights for thinking of it, said Miss Phoebe. You know, I've never been there before. Sister has many a time, but somehow, though my name has been down on the visitors' list these three years, the Countess has never named me in her note. And you know, I could not push myself into notice and go to such a grand place without being asked. How could I? I told Phoebe last year, said her sister, that I was sure it was only inadvertence, as one may call it, on the part of the countess, and that her ladyship would be as hurt as anyone when she didn't see Phoebe among the school visitors. But Phoebe has got a delicate mind, you see, Mr. Gibson, and all I could say, she wouldn't go, but stopped here at home and it spoils all my pleasure all that day, I do assure you. To think of Phoebe's face, as I saw it over the window blinds as I rode away. Her eyes were full of tears, if you believe me. I had a good cry after he was gone, Dorothy, said Miss Phoebe. But for all that, I think I was right in stopping away from where I was not asked. Don't you, Mr. Gibson? Certainly, said he. And you see, you are going this year, and last year it rained. Yes, I remember. I set myself to tidy my drawers to string myself up, as it were, and I was so taken with what I was about that I was quite startled when I heard the rain beating against the window panes. Goodness me, said I to myself, whatever will come of sister's white satin shoes if she has to walk about on soppy grass after such rain as this. For you see, I thought a deal about her having a pair of smart shoes, and this year she has gone and got me a white satin pair, just as smart as hers, for a surprise. Molly will know she's to put on her best clothes, said Miss Browning. We could perhaps lend her a few beads or artificials if she wants them. Molly must go in a clean white frock, said Mr. Gibson, rather hastily, for he did not admire the Miss Browning's taste in dress, and was unwilling to have his child decked up according to their fancy. He esteemed his old servant Bettys as the more correct, because the more simple. Miss Browning had just a shade of annoyance in her tone as she drew herself up and said, Oh, very well. It's quite right, I'm sure. But Miss Phoebe said, Molly will look very nice in whatever she puts on. That's certain. Chapter 2 A Novice Amongst the Great Folk At ten o'clock on the eventful Thursday, the tower's carriage began its work, Molly was ready long before it made its first appearance, although it had been settled that she and the Miss Brownings were not to go until the last or fourth time of its coming. Her face had been soaked, scrubbed, and shone brilliantly clean. Her frills, her frock, her ribbons were all snow white. She had on a black mowed cloak that had been her mother's. It was trimmed round with rich lace, and looked quaint and old-fashioned on the child. For the first time in her life she wore kid gloves, hitherto she had only had cotton ones. Her gloves were far too large for the little dimpled fingers, but as Betty had told her they were to last her for years, it was all very well. She trembled many a time, and almost turned faint once with the long expectation of the morning. Betty might say what she liked about a watched pot never boiling, Molly never ceased to watch the approach through the winding street, and after two hours the carriage came for her at last. She had to sit very forward to avoid crushing the Miss Browning's new dresses, and yet not too forward for fear of incommoding fat Mrs. Goodenough and her niece, who occupied the front seat of the carriage, so that altogether the fact of sitting down at all was rather doubtful, and to add to her, her discomfort. Molly felt herself to be very conspicuously placed in the centre of the carriage, a mark for all the observation of Hollingford. It was far too much of a gala day for the work of the little town to go forward with its usual regularity. Maid servants gazed out of upper windows, shopkeepers' wives stood on the doorsteps, cottagers ran out with babies in their arms, and little children... Too young to know how to behave respectfully at the sight of an Earl's carriage, huzzaed merrily as it bowled along. The woman at the lodge held the gate open and dropped a low curtsy to the liveries. And now they were in the park, and now they were in sight of the towers, and silence fell upon the carriage full of ladies, only broken by one faint remark from Mrs. Goodenough's niece, a stranger to the town as they drew up before the double semicircle flight of steps which led to the door of the mansion. They call that a perone, I believe, don't they? she asked. But the only answer she obtained was a simultaneous. Hush. It was very awful, as Molly thought. And she half-wished herself at home again. But she lost all consciousness of herself by and by when the party strolled out into the beautiful gardens, the like of which she had never even imagined. Great velvet lawns, bathed in sunshine, stretched away on every side into the finely wooded park. If there were divisions and ha-has between the soft, sunny sweeps of grass and the dark gloom of the forest trees beyond, Molly did not see them, and the melting away of exquisite cultivation into the wilderness had an inexplicable charm to her. Near the house there were walls and fences, but they were covered with climbing roses, and rare honeysuckles, and other creepers just bursting into bloom. There were flower beds too, scarlet, crimson, blue, orange, masses of blossom lying on the greensward. Molly held Miss Browning's hand very tight as they loitered about in company with several other ladies, and marshaled by a daughter of the towers, who seemed half amused at the voluble admiration showered down upon every possible thing and place. Molly said nothing, as became her age and position, but every now and then she relieved her full heart by drawing a deep breath, almost like a sigh. Presently, they came to the long glittering range of greenhouses and hothouses, and an attendant gardener was there to admit the party. Molly did not care for this half so much as for the flowers in the open air. But Lady Agnes had a more scientific taste. She expatiated on the rarity of this plant and the mode of cultivation required by that, till Molly began to feel very tired and then very faint. She was too shy to speak for some time, but at length, afraid of making a greater sensation if she began to cry or if she fell against the stands of precious flowers, she caught at Miss Browning's hand and gasped out, May I go back? out into the garden. I can't breathe here. Oh yes, to be sure, love. I dare say it's hard understanding for you, love, but it's very fine and instructive, and a deal of Latin in it too. She turned hastily round not to lose another word of Lady Agnes's lecture on orchids, and Molly turned back and passed out of the heated atmosphere. She felt better in the fresh air, and, unobserved, and at liberty, went from one lovely spot to another, now in the open park, now in some shut-in flower garden, where the song of the birds and the drip of the central fountain were the only sounds, and the treetops made an enclosing circle in the blue June sky. She went along without more thought as to her whereabouts than a butterfly has, as it skims from flower to flower till at length she grew very weary and wished to return to the house, but did not know how, and felt afraid of encountering all the strangers who would be there, unprotected by either of the Miss Brownings. The hot sun told upon her head, and it began to ache. She saw a great, wide-spreading cedar tree upon a burst of lawn, towards which she was advancing. And the black repose beneath its branches lured her thither. There was a rustic seat in the shadow, and weary Molly sat down there and presently fell asleep. Good night.